I just think there's a point where the insurers are going to say, we're not going to cover firefighters to enter these burning buildings. The building's a total loss. The risk of really significant injury is just so high. We're just not going to insure that anymore. Enchanted Sky Media. 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 From Los Angeles, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service discussing firefighting strategy, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again for another edition of Code 3. You are listening to the show for and about firefighters. Let's get started. If you're listening to this show on the date it was released, which is December 30th, 2019, congratulations, you've only got uh, maybe 20 hours until you've made it through the 2010s. It was a turbulent decade for first responders of all kinds, and the ride's likely to get even more bumpy into the next decade. What were the trends that made the 2010s a challenge, and where are we going? Greg Fries, editor-in-chief of EMS1.com, took a look back at some of the lowlights of the last decade and has some predictions for the 2020s. Greg, welcome back to Code 3. Thanks, Scott, for the welcome, and uh, it's always good to be a part of the podcast and to uh, speak to your audience. Thanks. It's great to have you. You wrote an article which essentially covers the lowlights of the last 10 years in, in emergency response. There are eight of them on the list, and I'd like to just go through them kind of in the order that you list them, and we'll talk about them a bit. That sounds good. Happy to do it. All right. Number one on your list was mass murder in our schools, and it's obvious that school shootings have gone way up. They didn't start in the last 10 years, but they seem to have proliferated. It's Scott, I think you're right about that. Certainly, many of us would go back to the Columbine shooting 20 years ago as maybe our initial awareness of, of school shootings and the evil which they bring. It was the Newtown school shooting or Sandy Hook in 2012, I think, that really made this a front of mind issue, not just uh, for parents and teachers, uh, but for the public as well. You know, as I kind of looked back on the decade, and, and you're right to call it a low lights, I generally think of myself as a pretty positive and optimistic person, but I think it has been challenging for EMS, fire, and, and police over the last 10 years. You know, the 2018 Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida, kind of forms a bookend, even though there's been other school shootings in 2019 or even afterwards in 2018, really bookends this decade as being one that school shootings impacted many agencies in a real direct way because it happened in their jurisdiction, but every agency has put in place uh, policies, likely completed training and purchased equipment, 
all related to preparedness for a school shooting with a not a matter of if, but a win mentality, which is especially tragic as a parent to say that out loud. Well, you know, we had an incident here in Southern California not long ago at Saugus High School, and the sound bites from the students I saw interviewed seemed to have a sort of a resignation that, yeah, it was going to happen here. It was only a matter of time, and that's pretty sad all by itself. I agree with you, Scott. I think the you know the reality for uh, kids that are in in primary or secondary school these days is that whatever they call it, uh, code red or lockdown drills are as common as as fire drills uh, and that there's practice that goes with it and messaging from teachers and principals and school officials and uh, just a you know recognition for kids maybe more so than adults that it's a part of their reality and you know I think the there's going to be my sense looking ahead is that there's going to be continuing emphasis on school resource officers or liaison police officers more things to harden the school building from attack and likely in many states increasing legislative rule or action to permit teachers to carry firearms. I'm not sure if we're doing enough to address what the underlying causes are of uh, kids going into schools with weapons, but hopefully we'll be better able to minimize the damage in the decade ahead. Was there a time in the past that you ever thought that firefighters and medics would be wearing tactical gear to go to calls like this? So certainly Newtown put that in the fore of the concept. And one of the things that emerged from that is this uh, rescue task force concept that to save lives from severe bleeding and airway compromise resulting from that penetrating trauma, we need to be working in the warm zone. And it's a bit fantasy to think that any of those scenes will be ever safe and that to save lives, you know, police escorting medical personnel, whether it be from a fire-based EMS system or a, a stand, standalone EMS agency into the warm zone to begin care while police also continue to seek out the shooter. Uh, I think it's a reality. I'm not sure. I'm nearing almost 20 years of uh, EMS involvement. I don't remember a time thinking that that was unrealistic, I guess. So it's probably part of what's happened to me and my understanding of EMS over the last 10 years is just the EMS has to be happening in the warm zone. And it's just the reality of becoming an EMT or paramedic in 2020. All right, we'll move on to your second one, which was an expanding scope of care for the lay responder. Now, there was a time when people would stand back and wait for a medic to show up. Now we're asking them to become involved. Why is that? And what's the impact of it? You know, Scott, so I think it has something to do with the, both changes in, in technology. And then as the technology improves with different uh, treatments, we can expand the pool of people that can deliver that treatment. So, you know, it was a time when defibrillation could only happen in the operating room or the intensive care unit. And then I, I believe it was the 
somebody will listen and correct me on this, but I want to say it was the late 60s, early 70s, that both in Columbus, Ohio and Dublin, Ireland, that there was these uh, essentially motorhomes that could deliver uh, defibrillation on scene. And you sort of advanced the defibrillation technology all the way to both implanted defibrillators, but also portable AEDs. And, you know, that treatment that was once a very specialized set of people delivering on a very limited and very controlled basis now is available to uh, almost any public location, whether it be a school, an airport, a business, that there is going to be defibrillators uh, close at hand. So I think it's partly a treat the technology change. And then it's also, I guess, uh, changing demands or expectations of the public. Two areas that, that really come to mind for me is one that really this is a mom rule here that moms expect that if their child is having anaphylaxis, whether it be from a bee sting uh, at summer camp or a peanut allergy in the school, that action will be taken by adults that are entrusted with the care of that child. And I think that's part of what's driven the huge expansion in the availability of epinephrine to treat anaphylaxis in sort of any public location. And then the opioid epidemic, which you know was a huge part of the 2010s, uh, and, and just the uh, really troubling, tragic uh, amount of death from opioid overdose doses in this past decade has led to all sorts of things to make naloxone more widely available. And so I think it's technology, and then it's also an expectation uh, that if there are relatively simple remedies like epinephrine for anaphylaxis or naloxone for opioid overdose, that those can be administered by people that recognize the emergency. So where do you think we're going in the next decade where this is concerned? You know, that's, I think, to me, technology is going to continue to be the driver here. I feel like I'm still trying to to wrap my head around the possibilities that are coming with 5G. But part of what I think 5G is going to open up for uh, not only EMS, but law enforcement and and fire officials or firefighters, uh, but also lay people is just an expansion of of telemedicine that it's just going to be so much easier and faster to connect people through their devices, whether it be the Amazon Echo or Google uh, Home in their kitchen to uh, some sort of uh, technology built into their defibrillator or their handheld communication device to expert level care that can then talk them through, like, here's how you need to treat this, or here's where you need to take this person for additional care. You know, and sometimes I think we're going to be contacting that additional help, and it's likely going to be some sort of artificial intelligence driven bot that we're interacting with. And, and maybe not even a person on the other end. All right. Number three is the war on drugs is the endless war. This one may be because it seems to morph every few years. We started out the decade dealing with meth and meth cooking, and it's come back. There's always going to be a new drug to deal with, and that includes safety for the responders also. This one, I was really struck by recent news articles about 
the increasing use of meth, especially in rural America. Uh, but I think we're also starting to hear in the Northeast that uh, meth is becoming an urban drug again. Uh, but sandwiched in between, I guess, the rise, the fall, and then rise, and then again, of meth is the unending opioid epidemic that, you know, there's still thousands of people that are being killed from opioid overdoses. There doesn't seem to be an end in sight. It's almost a whack-a-mole type situation as we follow the stories through the decade of, you know, sort of constant uh, peace with opioids, but cocaine is still around, as is synthetic marijuana or K2 or Flocka, ecstasy and other things associated with uh, date rape and sexual assault. That's a uh, War on drugs is ongoing. Public safety in all its forms is on the front lines of it. And then I think the piece that I didn't mention in the article is just we're we're regularly seeing our colleagues in public safety are as vulnerable to addiction as anybody else. And uh, that's especially sad. And I imagine your prediction here is pretty bleak. But what do you have for the next decade? You, You know, Scott, you're right. I still don't think we've taken uh, the opioid epidemic seriously enough, especially in sort of a federal and statewide level in terms of uh, both the law enforcement component and the resources available to law enforcement to investigate and arrest and and get drugs off the street, but also on the public health and healthcare side to both uh, prevent and and treat addiction. The other addiction that's likely going to become more prominent in the decade ahead is just how we continue to interact with our uh, devices, especially our smartphones, and then the growth of both augmented and virtual reality. But I think it will be something that has an impact on public safety 10 years out from now. Number four, mission creep. And under this category will include firefighters who are doing community risk reduction by removing fuel from around homes, paramedics who are doing community paramedicine. This is a lot of different work than these folks might have thought they were doing when they signed up. You know, I think it's, it is really interesting the way the mission or the expectation of police, fire, and EMS has changed. I think some of it is for the better. You know, obviously, when we can be doing things to prevent wildfires or lessen the impact of wildfires and help patients stay in their home, uh, versus being readmitted to the hospital. Obviously, there's a lot of, of good that can come from that. I also think it's expanded the workload for a lot of people in public safety. It's calling on them to do things that they weren't trained to do or don't have adequate amounts of training. I've seen estimates anywhere between, say, 1% to 10% of patient contacts are patients that are having some sort of behavioral emergency. And I can tell you for sure 10% of paramedic training is not on patients with behavioral emergencies. And, and so that there's this uh, mismatch between uh, training and the actual work that is being done. I also think as the amount of work increases, there's been an impact on morale, which becomes a retention issue. 
but also a recruitment issue. I, I think as the decade has been winding down, we've been doing a better job of, of helping people understand what they're getting into with the public safety career or even as a volunteer in fire and EMS. Uh, but the, there is still, I think, a, a disconnect between what they might have signed up for and what the work has become. You know, one of the things that concerns me here is that there's been a general feeling that, well, there are fewer fires, so firefighters can also do X, and that's fine for the short term. But then are they expected to add in Y and Z? And if so, why is it that they never get a budget increase to do those things? I, th- I think that's a frustration for many people, right, is that some areas of work might have declined, like actual putting out fires, but the training to be ready for fire suppression, that's unchanged. The maintenance of the equipment for that is unchanged. You know, I think in, in some areas, too, there's maybe different types of fires that structure fires might be less than they were in the past, but uh, vegetation fires are increasing or there's just other types of calls that are filling that void. And those other calls bring with them training and budget demands. But meanwhile, the fire service is still expected to be ready for a structure fire. Now, your prediction for the next decade I've seen here, and it's kind of interesting. Tell me about that. I've gone out on a limb here at risk of uh, sawing myself into irrelevance, but police will probably continue to see the expectation put on them to provide some sort of basic life support or emergency care increase. The firefighter, I just think there's a point, Scott, where at some point the insurers are going to say, we're not going to cover firefighters to enter these burning buildings the building's a total loss. The risk of really significant injury, as well as chronic disability from something like cancer, is just so high. We're just not going to, as well as the death, of course, we're just not going to insure that anymore. Um, I think there's a chance to, to really see a change in fire suppression. And then residential sprinklers are going to become a norm. And, you know, the fire is going to be out automatically or at least very limited you know i think there's just going to be some big changes and i don't think i'll comment on that i think we (laughs) all know where we stand on that whole thing and frankly i hope you're wrong in some form on that fair enough fair enough yeah let's move on to number five Number five you called, is any of this working? And you, you hear you're referring to safety among first responders, whether it be cancer prevention and firefighters or mental health PTSD recognition or even driver training as it might concern medics. Where have we come in the last 10 years on that? Scott, I think there's been a lot of great uh, training, a lot of great initiatives, a lot of great collaborations, you know, all sorts of uh, national organizations coming together to develop guidelines and best practices. You know, really uh, one of the biggest transformations of the 2010s is the degree to which we can talk om- openly about the traumatic stress uh, related to working or volunteering in public safety and the impact that that's had on, on people, uh, both physically and mentally. The, the question that, that I have is, 
I'm just not sure if what we're doing right now is working. I'm not questioning the intentions or the importance of the efforts around, say, PTSD or cancer or roadside safety. I'm just worried we're, we haven't found the right sort of set of things or formulas to maximize our impact. We shouldn't stop doing what we are doing, but we should be looking critically at these efforts and organizations and saying, where can we have the most impact on the most people to save the most lives and keep the most people involved? I don't want to lose anybody to a death in an ambulance crash or firefighters' deaths from cancer. You know, all those lives really matter and are important. I want to make sure as we continue these efforts in the decade ahead that we're looking for evidence of what's working and, and scaling the programs that are most effective to have the most impact. And your prediction for the next 10 years, while it may not exactly be sunny, it sounds like it's at least optimistic. Yes, I would say yes. I am optimistic here that we're going to continue the work that's begun this decade and continue to have a really significant impact on the people that are doing this important work in police, fire, and EMS, as well as corrections, to help them best care for themselves mentally, but also fitness and and be supportive of their peers and build cultures in their organizations where not only is it you're making an impact in your community, uh, but you're preserving your own well-being. Number six is all about money. We know that consumers had a hard time around 2008 when the economy collapsed. What the consumer may not realize is that emergency services ran into the same problems. Every agency that had this problem is still pretty much underfunded. What has that meant to those of us who've had to deal with that lack of funding? Scott, you know, this could really be an area where I would just want civilians or citizens to be more aware of uh, just the strain on their public safety personnel that are are there to serve and protect them, that as the mission has expanded, that uh, creeping mission, the amount of resources has not changed relative to the expanding mission. And, and, And then you add on top of that the real difficulty recruiting people into whether it be volunteering or paid positions in public safety has really made this a hard decade for public safety to really keep up. And it's everything from, you know, maintaining stations or headquarters buildings to replacing vehicles on an appropriate schedule to saying, you know, the there's technology or equipment or training out there that would help us better serve our community. We just can't afford to to purchase that and, and make it a reality here. Uh, it's been difficult, really difficult. Your prediction here for the next 10 years? It's going to get worse. That I, <laughs> I don't mean to be so uh, glum. I think uh, one of our columnists on EMS1, Anthony Minge, he's a part of Fitch and Associates. He wrote uh, not long ago, it's, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when we're going to have our next uh, recession. That's just the 
cycle of the economy and municipal budgets will be impacted. You know, the federal funding that, that results in grant programs are going to be impacted as well. You know, maybe there's going to be places where the taxpayers will step up and say, well, that's not going to, that's not acceptable here. This is an important public service and we're going to fund it appropriately. Number seven is it's autumn for volunteers. And we've known this has been coming for some time, but I think this last decade's really put a fine point on the concept that we can try as hard as we will, but the way society is structured now, we just haven't been able to attract the kind of volunteers we need. So where have we been and then where do you think we'll be going? Scott, you know, I got my start in EMS as a volunteer and and treasured that experience and think very highly of volunteer fire and EMS and the people that uh, do it to this day for their communities. It really is something that's uh, noble and honorable. I also have watched over these last 20 years and the continuing challenge in the 2010s of just how difficult it is to maintain a volunteer agency. And, And there's so many factors from you know, the expanding mission of fire and EMS, the increasing demands of training, whether it be training that's required by state statute or just the sort of culture of an organization, a volunteer organization, to be well-trained, the difficulty to maintain and replace equipment, you know, fire trucks and ambulances are not getting cheaper and that's not likely to change. You know, there's been so many efforts around how to improve retention and recruitment. And I just worry that we're not, we haven't come up with the right set of, whether it be uh, tax incentives, uniform reimbursements, uh, sort of calls to people's better nature. There's just (laughs) not enough there uh, to sustain these organizations. And then especially on EMS as Rural hospitals continue to close. You know, one of the direct impacts on EMS is transport times increase. You know, when I started, uh, you know, many years ago, any call was a minimum of two hours. By the time we got to the station, got to the patient, got to the patient to the hospital and got back to the station, I was away from work for two hours at least. And there's many people might be listening and thinking, two hours, you were lucky. It's four hours for me. And if your nearest hospital, which was once 30 miles away, becomes 60 or 70 miles away, you know, that's a whole different burden as an EMS volunteer to be transporting uh, patients where you're gone for half a day. Maybe telemedicine will somewhat reduce that burden, but I think, you know, volunteer-based EMS or firefighting, we're going to continue to see that decline throughout the next decade. That's going to be a challenge for a lot of communities. It sure is. And I don't think they're ready for it. All right. Your final point, number eight, was that there was no data then, too much data now. (laughs) Which is a case where we uh, we wished for it, and now maybe we're sorry we did. <laughs> yeah, it really is an incredible change over the last 10 years. The amount of data that's either available to us in, in kind of a real-time 
situation, you know, maybe it's previous experience at this uh, location or a pre-plan for a, a public building or a university dorm that can be called up on the MDT and route to the call. You know, it's the data of uh, after the fact of like being able to call up like, well, every cardiac arrest uh, call over the last 10 years you know, all that data is available to us now. What do we do with it? It could even be, you know, how many, not just, you know, it sounds very rudimentary, but how many IVs did a paramedic start, but also like how many children did they care for? How many falls, uh, patient falls, who, which paramedic had the most, most patients sign releases, uh, is really an incredible amount of data. Um, that I'm not sure we've come to terms with yet. So overall, will the next decade be better for fire and EMS or is it going to be more challenging? So Scott, I, I, like I said at the outset, I like to think of myself as a pretty optimistic person. I think it's going to be a really interesting decade and, and likely pretty positive for public safety. Well, we'll be watching. Hopefully we can spot some trends and then either amplify or shut them down as fast as possible. Greg Freeze, thanks for talking with me again on Code 3. Happy to do it, Scott. And we're looking forward to uh, continuing to work with you to bring important information to Fire and EMS in the decade ahead. And thanks so much. Well, that's what Greg saw when he looked back. What was your experience like? Are you optimistic about the next decade? You can leave your comments on our website at code3podcast.com slash decade. There's a link to Greg's article there as well, so check it out. All right, that's it. That's all for the slightly extended edition of Code 3. I'll be back in 2020 with more. I hope you'll be here with me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To contact us, get more information on today's topic, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.